coming up on the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. I remember our first paper, which was a small pilot study on demonstrating that LSD enhances music-evoked emotion. And I remember the comments on Facebook when journalists were reporting on this saying, duh, you know, we, we know this, this is common knowledge. But the reality, of course, is that may be anecdotal knowledge in the community, but there we still need to build empirical foundations to turn this into a science, to turn this into something that the very quickly growing scientific community can work with and a therapist can work with. Because up until then, no one, in, at least in this modern era, was asking any questions about music and psychedelics. I remember I started doing my PhD with, with Robin and, and David, Robin Carter-Harris and David Nutt. And in that first year, kind of halfway through, I realized that looking at this image, looking at an um, image of a patient being treated with psilocybin, with an eye mask, with headphones, and I realized, wow, music plays a super central component in this entire experience. Welcome to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast, a weekly conversation series with leaders in psychedelic culture, designed for therapists, healers, retreat leaders, and passionate enthusiasts. Presented by Maya, and hosted by me, Eamon Armstrong. Welcome back to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. From reggae and cannabis to the Icaros of an ayahuasca ceremony, sound has a huge impact on altered states of consciousness. But what's actually going on scientifically? And how can we use this for better psychedelic therapy? Well, today's guest, Mendel Kalin, founder of Wave Paths, has researched the subject extensively and created a tool for therapy. On the show, we discuss how music and psychedelics reinforce each other exponentially. We talk about the importance of tone color and other aspects of structured sound for the experience of healing. Mendel shares about Wave Paths, which he considers more a musical instrument than software. Finally, we explore the traditional ayahuasca Icaros, the sacred songs of the Amazon. Mendel is the founder and CEO of WavePaths, a company that is researching the psychotherapeutic potential of music and creating a tool for therapists. Mendel was also a PhD and postdoctoral neuroscientist at Imperial College London, where, among other research, he investigated the role of music in psychedelic therapies. Mendel. Welcome to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. It's such a pleasure to speak with you today. Thanks, Eamon. Good to see you. Good to meet you. From my first experiences listening to Dark Side of the Moon while smoking weed to the Icaros of an ayahuasca ceremony, I have personally been extremely attached to the music that I experience while exploring my consciousness. I know many, many, many people have this experience. Mm -hmm. We have our things that we like. So it's no surprise to me that there's a way to study, actually, the intersection of music and a psychedelic experience. And in fact, that by understanding how music can actually affect the mind, we can actually create a more effective psychedelic therapy experience, which is huge especially right now with the field of psychedelic medicine just beginning. So it's really exciting to get to talk to you because this is your area of focus, both with what you were doing with Imperial College London and now with your company Wave Paths. So by way of preamble, I've been wanting to talk about sound for a while and I'm so happy to be talking to you today. So again, thanks for coming on. And, and just to, to start, did you start with a real passion for sound or was it about your experience with psychedelics, your personal healing that then led you to start looking into sound as part of the set and setting experience of psychedelics? Uh, interesting question. So there's these three themes here, right? We talk about consciousness or one may even say human development, understanding the mind, understanding what it means to be human. And then we talk about music and psychedelics. And if I look at my own life, my own development, if I would be asked to put that into an order, as you are kind of suggesting, I would probably say that music came first above everything else, then an interest in, in, in consciousness, and then an interest in psychedelics. Yeah, I grew up in a very musical family. I've been playing musical instruments for all of my life, various instruments. I'm still playing music. I'm still making music. And 
before I got interested in psychedelics, I already switched to neuroscience because I got so fascinated by the many unanswered questions that are out there related to consciousness and related to how the mind works and how our personalities come into being and, and all these related questions. And when I learned about psychedelics, it became a very obvious thing to explore that. It was a very kind of organic continuation of that. Beautiful. Have you ever written music <laughs> based on the principles that you've learned about the neurobiology of sound? It may surprise people to, to hear that my, my immediate response would be to say no. I think the biggest impact on the ways that I listen and the way, which is intrinsically related to the ways that I make music is really influenced by my direct experiences with psychedelics, but most notably cannabis, starting to explore cannabis in my early twenties after I had my experience with magic mushrooms and really learning how to listen to, to sounds, not merely music, but really sound in a new way and all the depths and the, the details that become available in your perception and the way sound and music is structured. And I, I got really into many, many artists that are really exploring new ways that sound happens. Artists like Thomas Koehner, Francisco Lopez, Taylor Dupre, many, many others. When it comes to my neuroscience on music and psychedelics, there are definitely some really interesting findings that are very confirmative to what I've been thinking and many people are having started to develop thoughts around and that is that one of the main findings that we had in our LSD study, our neuroimaging LSD study using using LSD to understand how music perception is altered, is that under the influence of LSD in this case, there is this heightened this 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 redistribution of resources in the brain that helps to that seem to help with processing timbre or tone color. In more in more detail and tone color can be defined as the harmonics that are present in sounds other than pitch or volume without going maybe into too much details for now for the sake of your, your question there is definitely out of that research and, and other findings in that research as well some awareness of what is most likely to be good and in, more impactful to focus on if you want this sound or music to have a particular impact in a psychedelic state, for sure. But for my own personal practice, I'm the whole point of my personal music practice is not to be a scientist and really be in the moment and, and enjoy and be curious and be entirely subjective about everything I do. Mm, I love that. I love that. And we're going to go well into tone color and how the brain makes sense of sound. Mm-hmm. But I want to I want to jump back to something that you started with a moment ago, which is you referenced mushrooms. And I know that you tried mushrooms for the first time in 2005 when they were legal in Holland, mm-hmm. and that before that you were suffering from depression. What I read about you was that that you did mushrooms once and that the depression went away. Is is that what happened? Have you, was that like a single experience with psychedelics and the depression left your life completely, or has that been something that's that's come back in your experience? Yeah, thank you for asking that question because there's some important nuance to to add to at least the interpretation that you share here with me because it's definitely not true that I had one single psychedelic experience that that, that cured me. That would be a significant misinterpretation of what, what really happened. But it is true that that one experience that I had, that first experience, radically shifted the way I perceived myself and the way I perceived the world and the way I perceived and connected with opportunities around me, the way I perceived and was able again to imagine a future, the way I reconnected with my creativity, the way I connected, reconnected with optimism, friends, family, all of those things were definitely initiated by that one single experience, but it doesn't mean that that solved everything in my life. <laughs> definitely not. It's definitely true that my interest in psychedelics is really a combination of intellectual interest and and, and personal interest, it started with that intellectual interest of really being interested in altered states of consciousness and consciousness in general and uh, understanding the mind and realizing that these psychedelics can be tools to understand it. And I, as an interesting side effect of my first experience, had a very significantly personally meaningful experience, but that was not my intention, funny enough. 
uh, to have that. I definitely continue to explore psychedelics because it it it, it became a huge uh, interest of mine, a huge curiosity was awakened around these different psychedelic medicines that are out there. I uh, lived in the Amazon very soon after, when I was 20, 21, for about half a year. Explored ayahuasca shamanism in various contexts. Stayed at one place um, at some point for a few months and did various diets. And and, and that ex- those experiences there as well were really powerful. But the I, I think this, this brings me to the next point. When I returned to Holland... That was the most difficult experience of that whole period in my life where I explored ayahuasca and, and, and different psychedelic plants. I went through a lot of change and I needed to find ways to root myself into those changes and ensure that the environment around me was open for those changes, including my social environment. And that took some time and effort and, and I, I entered a, a very informative period of my life as well. When I was 21, returned back to Holland, I finished my bachelor degree and then decided to not do anything um, um, for a year apart from making sure I have some income, but have enough time to really connect with the issues that came up for me. And I decided to not focus on those, those personal challenges with psychedelics. I felt I had enough of them. And the most important thing for me in that period, very instinctively felt to connect with nature, to start psychotherapy, to have enough time in my life to journal, to make music. And that was more than a year I, I've been doing this, that, that really pausing the, 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 the speedy train of, you know, university and all of that. And the pressure that you feel on that really to take a step back and, and continue to work on myself. And, and this is the thing. These, these psychedelic medicines, they are catalysts. They can facilitate very powerful experiences or very subtle experiences. But the most, the, at least equally important is the work that happens after that. And I've had, a, I've had experience with it in my personal life in various ways. But this is also a very common theme and very common knowledge in psychedelic therapy and how it's being developed and how therapists are starting to think about psychedelic therapy, really acknowledging that full, that full cycle. You know, how do you prepare yourself for this experience? Are you ready for this experience? Do you need to have this experience to begin with? Or are there other paths that may be more supportive for you in your life right now? And then the experience itself, and then ways that you can not necessarily reconnect with that experience in the past, but reconnect with and continue to be connected with the process, the processes that that experience has initiated in this moment. Are there ways to continue that process? without necessarily needing to use psychedelic drugs. Not that there's anything wrong with these psychedelic drugs, needed to say, but you need to find ways in life to root that process of introspection, connection and growth in your daily life and not making it dependent on these these big moments. Uh, and there's a place for both of them. There's a, there's a place for these, 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 one may call them rites of passages, these rituals that are potentially very profound. And then there is the work and there is the the discipline, then there is the commitment, then there is the the continuous invitation to be honest with yourself. Mm. I love that. And I, I think a lot of our listeners can really resonate with their own healing journey needing to involve periods of deep integration. And mm-hmm. often after that period of deep integration, there's sometimes uh, a call to service. There's a call to mm-hmm. contribute. And it sounds like that might have been what happened to you leading to becoming a postdoctoral research associate at the Department of Brain Sciences at Imperial College London. So did you go from this integration period and kind of felt called to work in psychedelics and that brought you to that postdoctoral research? Hmm. It's an interesting question. No one ever phrased it that way. A call to service, you refer to this. It definitely feel and felt like that in the sense that I had this experience that changed me and I asked myself, is it just me or is there something more at play here that has some significance for how we understand mental health and how we can help more people in this world? And then I learned about MAPS and then I learned about the Beckley Foundation and Hefter and all of these nonprofits that did great work and continue to do great work right now and felt I needed to join that effort. And ways I started to explore that was 
um, working with a foundation in Holland, organizing conferences, visiting many conferences, organizing various students, discussion groups as a student. And, and that's eventually how I met various researchers and, and felt really humbled, still feel really humbled by having had the opportunity to work at Imperial College London as a PhD student, as a postdoctoral neuroscientist. And, you know, there's, um, I think it was Joseph Campbell who used to say, we said in one of his books, I think it's actually one of his most famous quotes, follow your bliss. And if you do so, and I'm paraphrasing him, I don't know the exact quote, but if you follow your bliss, um, doors will open for you that you didn't realize uh, that were there, right? And when you step through those doors, you realize there's, there's all of these companions on your way that you will meet. There's all of these, these, these other beings in life that share that passion, that share that interest. And you're, you're starting to collaborate. You start to co-create. You start to build communities. And that is really what, what happened in my lives and the lives of many people I know that have been trying to find ways and building successful ways to work with psychedelics and their own unique passions in this field and their, their lives. Yeah. I love that. It's inspiring. And I think so many people have had that experience and have been humbled by the grace that happens when those doors reveal themselves yeah. and yeah, yeah. the fellow travelers appear to help us along the way. So here you are at Imperial College London. You are studying psychedelics, psychedelic therapy, looking at the these now very famous brain imaging scans of people under the influence of LSD. I'm curious, what was the first thing that you learned about the intersection of psychedelics and sound that really blew your mind. Can you recall mm-hmm. a time when you were like, you're exploring set and setting, and mm-hmm. there was just kind of an aha moment about the efficacy of sound in the psychedelic space? And maybe we can get into a little bit of the science too. Great question. You know why I think that's a great question? Because there's there are some of these findings that we published on that. I remember our first paper, which was a small pilot study on demonstrating that LSD enhances music-evoked emotion. And I remember the comments on Facebook when journalists were reporting on this saying, duh, you know, we, we know this, this is, this is common knowledge. But the reality, of course, is that may be anecdotal knowledge in the community, but there we still need to build empirical foundations to turn this into a science, to turn this into something that the very quickly growing scientific community can work with and a therapist can work with, because up until then, no one, at least in this modern era, was asking any questions about music and psychedelics, and that baffled me. And that moment, well, maybe that is the first aha moment, actually, before I go into this other one that came up when you asked the question, the first one was actually that. I remember, I started doing my PhD with with Robin and and David, Robin Carteris and David Nutt, and in that first year, kind of halfway through, I realized, looking at this image, looking at the image of a patient being treated, with psilocybin, with an eye mask, with headphones. And I realized, wow, music plays a super central component in this entire experience. And no one is actually challenging that or, or, or asking questions. Why, how music can be best used, how music athletics work in the brain. That was one aha moment. And that allowed me to merge those two parts that I just explained to you that felt like a dilemma back then. I felt I needed to make a decision between be- being working with music and studying psychedelics to merge them. So that was the first aha moment. When it came to uh, scientific insights, your question around scientific insights and aha moments, beyond the the duh moments, beyond the we know this already, but it's still important to validate this and to challenge this in scientific ways. Uh, we may have a strong hypothesis here, but we definitely should still challenge this and build the foundations. Beyond that, I think one of the, there's a few there, but one of the first is also the first um, neuroscience study that we published on where we looked at mental imagery and more specifically the vividness of mental imagery and how music and psychedelics influence mental imagery, eyes closed mental imagery, eyes closed imagination and the vividness of that imagination. There's various different terms that we can use to describe this phenomena. And what we showed in that study is that there seems to be a real synergy between music and psychedelics. It's not that we have music being able to facilitate mental enhanced that's a vividness of imagery that people can have in a sober state. And then you, you add psychedelics on top of that and psychedelics 
at this kind of linear stacking effect of, of enhancing, there's a real exponential interaction effect between psychedelics and music. When we look at the neuronal level, when we look at how um, these two elements interact to change information flow in the brain, the, the way information flows exchange between different brain regions. And this is also really interesting. Robin did a lot of good groundwork when it came to hypotheses and formations and formulating hypotheses, looking, being very interested in a network called the parahippocampal visual cortex network. So more specifically, information exchange connections between a region called the parahippocampus and the visual cortex. The parahippocampus is part of the so-called medial temporal lobe structures that is specialized in autobiographical memory and other things as well, spatial orientation, for example, and, and, and various other things. And there is uh, there are very strong direct connections between that region and the visual cortex. And there are other studies that have nothing to do with psychedelics that show that if you stimulate, if you provide an electrical current directly into a subregion of the parahippocampal cortex, there is an enhanced information flow from that region towards the visual cortex that is specifically associated with strong visual hallucinations, using the language of that particular study, mm. or deja vu experiences as well. There's various other studies that look at this phenomena. Really interesting. So we had this hypothesis that that same mechanism, to some degree, may be relevant for understanding psychedelics and psychedelics and music in this context. And we there's some nuances in that study that, that I maybe shouldn't go into for now, but that was a really amazing finding because it it, it, it really get, gave a very strong empirical foundation for why music and psychedelics can be so powerful uh, that we're not we're not talking about something linear we're really talking about these exponential effects that occur between two different agents that uh, I came to really believe are both psychedelics in themselves they both have these mind-revealing properties in themselves, but together there is this interaction effect. And that was one of the most, one of the most earliest findings that definitely was very fascinating to find, to report on, to elaborate on, to, to write a story about and to inspire uh, future research. Mm. Wow. Well, let's just keep going deep in the science. You've you've published more than thirty academic papers, and you have founded WavePass, which we'll get into shortly. So you've mm-hmm. spent a lot of time with this material. Earlier on in the conversation, mm-hmm. you mentioned tone color, and I got the impression that tone color is part of the key to understanding how our brain makes sense of sound. And so, can we talk a little bit more about tone color and maybe what? tone colors, what particular types of sound are really resonant with a psychedelic experience and and support healing in a psychedelic space? Yeah, so before I, I answer that in, in more detail, I, I would like to add a minor footnote or a little disclaimer to your question uh, or the way you phrased it. Um, I think with all of these studies, we need to be very mindful that there are little studies and we, we want to be really careful concluding that this is the key to this or this is the most important variable out of these variables. Any single study needs to be taken, needs to be analyzed and assessed in the context of its methods and all these things. So actually there can this paper out in December, for example, that compared overtone based playlists with classical playlists. Fantastic study. I was really happy to see that. But the, the wrong conclusion of that study that I see circulating around is that overtones are better than, or playlists that are overtone based are better than playlists that have classical music. There's so much important nuance that needs to be taken into account when you study the methods of that paper, that study. One example is that overtone playlists still have the Beatles and classical music and other elements in there. So it's really how we, how we formulate and structure conclusions and hypotheses that is very important when we discuss science. So when it comes to our study that you refer to and the the 
interpretations and conclusions around tone color, yes, that has been one of the most interesting findings from that study. Uh, so I will unpack this a little bit for your audience, what we found in that study and what we did in that study. So we had participants, healthy volunteers, listening to music, ambient music, by Robert Rich, more specifically, under placebo and comparing these different conditions. And and we also had a condition without music. So we're able to compare music versus no music and then LSD versus placebo. And that allowed us to study the various interaction effects between music and psychedelics on the brain. And in this particular study, we decomposed the music that was played into the different acoustic properties of the music. So we created so-called time courses, timelines of um, the different acoustic properties that make up a song. For example, the degree to which it is minor or major, um, the all the different frequency bands that are part of the music, the different elements related to tone color, um, such as the amount of um, brightness in the music, the amount of dissonance in the music, and the pulse in the music, the rhythms in the music, all of these different elements. So we did that, of course, algorithmically. We used various tools out there that then give us this time course. There's this degree of dissonance in there or brightness or loudness or this pitch over time. And then we can see how that correlates with how brain areas are active and how brain activity basically correlates with these different time courses. And one of the things that we found was that com comparing music, I'm just going to jump straight into the results of the paper, comparing music with no music and then contrasting that with LSD and placebo, we found increased activation in brain regions associated with emotion regulation and language processing, most typically, that was much higher under music in response to music to to silence comparing lsd with placebo in response to tone color and tone color or timbre are all of the harmonies that are there that have nothing to do with the loudness of the music or the pitch of the music so often tone color is described in kind of negative ways in the sense that it is described what it is not this is what tone color is not to give you an, an illustration or to understand what tone color means, when we, when we compare two different instruments, let's say a flute and a, and, a, and a violin, you can play, the person can play the flute and the violin in exactly the same pitch and exactly the same volume, but you will still hear what the flute is or what the violin is. And your, your brain does that by analyzing the other harmonics that are there apart from loudness and pitch. And that, broadly speaking, is called tone color. In our study, we found more specifically that the complexity of the harmonics or the overtones, if you wish, these are inter interchangeable, these terms, the, the, the other harmonics that are there are correlated with these enhanced activations in these brain regions and that correlated with emotions associated with peak experiences. And that opened up a whole world of literature for me to study and read around tone color and, and the significance of tone color in our human development and in and music perception and sound perception and communication and evolution of sound and all these different things. But it's, it, it, that was a really interesting finding because when you, when you, when you look into the significance of tone color, tone color is really one of the more important variables and sounds to communicate, to convey emotion. Tone color is used in, in our verbal communication when we speak as well. It is one of the most important ways that babies, before they are even born into this world, start to build a relationship, an attachment with significant caregivers around themselves, start to build a relationship with their outside world, although maybe inside and outside may not be really there for the infant in that moment. But the hearing of pre-born infants is fine-tuned to unique details and tone color already for years before it starts to acquire capacities to speak and, and, and learn verbal language. And so tone color there is used to distinguish between different personalities, different voices. 
And in, in music, it's, it's, we are most likely extrapolating and, and utilizing these innate sensitivities to tone color and other aspects in music and sound as well to create ways to evoke subjective experiences. So why that is the case is still an open question. Why our brain is suddenly allocating so many resources to, to process the timbral details in music is still something we need to understand and, 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 and design appropriate scientific studies for, but it has definitely led to various theories and, and hypotheses. And it is safe to conclude from that study that tone color is a very important component in music. Yeah, but not the only one. This was the footnote and disclaimer that I wanted to place at the beginning of my question. There's, because we looked at many other things as well. There were so many findings in that paper and people were interested in this can read it themselves. So many findings that it just wouldn't be possible to study, uh, or not, it wouldn't be possible to publish all those details in one paper. It was a very so-called data-driven bottom-up analysis that we've done using acoustic variables and, and, and these other things that I just explained. So after your work at Imperial College, you have founded a company called WavePaths. And WavePaths is an adaptive AI music generation technology. And the goal mm -hmm. is to generate music according to empirically distinct therapeutic categories and individual music preferences and needs. Can you explain how the research that you did at Imperial College London and other research you've done with psychedelics and sound have led to this company and how this company is creating music that is effective for psychedelic therapy? Sure, yeah. There's various elements there, but maybe the most important one to highlight, which was one of those other aha moments, is the observation that one and the same song in a psychedelic therapy session can, for one person, facilitate a profound, emotionally moving, life-changing experience filled with insight and, and motivations for change. Whereas for others, exactly that same song has been a source for and can be a source for confusion, distraction, and potentially even in some cases this was the case, paranoia, thought confusion, anxiety, intense anxiety. And that, that is one of the key findings from the, one of these papers called The Hidden Therapist, where we rather than only focusing on neuroscience, we interviewed all of our patients in great detail and asked them questions around their music experience. And all of this research combined really demonstrated the importance of adapting music to the person, having the know-how and having the capacity to interact and, and adapt music to the individual that has this very profound experience in order to continuously strive to create the right supportive environment. Patients are going through an experience that is highly dynamic, highly unpredictable, first of all. You may have a rough sense about what may happen in the beginning, but the more the session unfolds, the more there's a degree of unpredictability and, and, and dynamism at hand. But also that there is a person, an individual that has this experience. And you cannot treat every individual the same because every individual brings his or her own unique story and unique set of traits to the table, to the session. So one of the elements that we are actively exploring is this recognition that music really is a language to some degree, but it's a nonverbal language. It communicates not in a concrete way, but it, it, it communicates processes. It communicates the process of letting go. It communicates the process of grieving. It communicates the process of finding hope. It communicates the process of cathartic peak experiences. It communicates the processes of finding stillness. But music as an envelope of structured sound provides these, these abstract templates that for both evolutionary reasons, but also developmental and cultural reasons, we start to then associate with. And these personal associations are then projected into the 
musical event, into the musical process. Right? So music may, may be about grief, or it may convey a process of grief, but the grieving about this person or about this event in your life is created by your mind listening and interacting with the music. But in order for that meaningful interaction to happen, in order for music to personally resonate with the individual, in order for the music to really be part of the language of the receiver, of the interactor, of the, the, the patient, the client that has the journey, the music needs to be fitting into what music the person has built an attachment to, has built an identity structure around, has integrated in, in, in his or her identity structure to such a degree that music has become a language for this person. And we all do that. Right? We all do that in our own ways through the music we are exposed to. And I would sometimes even dare to speculate through the voices that we have been building various attachments and relationship with before we're even born and, and once we start to develop. So our relationship with sound through our life will inform how we respond to music. And that response, that musical language is not universal. Right? It's First of all, there are cultural differences. And secondly, there are generational differences. And then within that, there are personal differences. And understanding really in detail what language a person is speaking musically is really at the heart of what we're doing. And then making that process highly accessible and intuitive for the therapist and for the care provider. And if there are so many complexity, is there, if there's so much complexity in working with music in a person-centered way, which there is, let's really not make psychedelic therapy more complex and, 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 and utilize some of these technologies that are out there to make it more intuitive more accessible, more easy to work with music in a person-centered way and do it as such that it not only not distracts from the process, but actually can add to the intuition, to the, the artful work of the therapist, that, that that process, this technology can actually help the, the therapist in this case to be more present with the patient, to be more attuned to the patient. The least that we want is people to get confused and concerned about what the music needs to be doing. And people may lose themselves into scrolling different songs and playlists and searching for the right song or the right tag of the song or you name it. Therapists that are beta testing our technology are referring to it as a thermostat for music. It's that same ease as switching the temperature or the light in the room. But the technology underneath it is, is definitely getting more and more sophisticated. And so you were just describing a personal relationship to music. So this mm. technology, WavePass, is used to support psychedelic therapists in finding the right music for a particular patient. Is it personalized in that way? And if so, how is it personalized? How is the psychedelic therapist able to use this tool to really get the music that mm-hmm. their exact client needs? Yeah, so... Personalization happens in different domains. Uh, it happens in the domain that I just elaborated briefly on, which is understanding what music is most likely providing meaningful responses in this, in this individual, the music that is most likely re- relatable for this individual. That's one element. The other element of personalization is understanding the process of therapy, the personal process that is unfolding in this person right here in this moment, the phenomenology of that experience, and then creating the right supportive atmosphere around that. And that may include music, it may not include music, it may at times need to be something completely else. But music can be a powerful therapeutic tool to work with in various of these these processes. So part of the work that we're doing is, is algorithmic, so we're building predictive models, understanding what this person is, what acoustic variables, compositional variables are most likely to support this individual for this person to be, uh, for this person to relate with. But there's also a very big component here that is having the intention to develop something that is really an musical instrument, much more a musical instrument than it would be a piece of software. Mm. And that you as a therapist or a facilitator can really play with in any way you want, in any depth as you want. You can leave it alone and, and, and trust the 
algorithm to do its own thing, you can manually override it and change the contours and, and, and atmosphere and emotional qualities or instruments of the music in as great detail as you want. Or you can interact with it all the time, as you would do when you play a keyboard. <laughs> There's literally that whole range of interaction that you as a facilitator of any sorts, whether you are working with psychedelics or other um, methods, can work with. And it's really that inclusiveness, not being too prescriptive, that we want to support because we know that that's how therapists prefer to work. But there is some difference there. Some people like to have more hand-holding than others. Some people like to have more control of the music than others. And that's offering that to people is really what we're focusing on. So, yeah, so right now we're developing additional features that give therapists more control over filtering various instruments, acoustic qualities, equalizing sounds if they wish that, you know, having more control of the frequencies and the sounds, the, the, the various um, categories of tone color that we are mapping out. And, and going into great detail and, and choosing these different sonic textures. One of the most important features maybe, I mean, there's this var various here, but one of the, the things that we have invented and developed is the degree to which you, as a therapist, can make the music directional. And let me unpack this for a moment. What we mean with that is, first of all, acknowledging that music provides an influence in the experience. And that's also why you want music in that moment, is to facilitate an influence in the experience. And therefore, I always disagree with therapists that refer to psychedelic therapy as non-directive. It's very directive. If you think about what we're doing, we're, we're giving patients a medicine that makes them very open and vulnerable and receptive, and one may even say suggestible. And then we ask people to listen to sometimes very emotionally evocative music with their eyes closed and their headphones on. And it's quite directive. So the question is not, is this directive or non-directive? The question is, can we work in a person-centered way? And can we have control over the type of directions and the degree of directions? So with the degree of directions, we basically talk about the degree to which the music is grabbing the attention of the listener with that one extreme music that is as ignorable as it is interesting, true ambient music and the real meaning of the word, really subtle overtones, tones, melodies. You can have control over the complexity of that, the volume of that, the, the instruments of that, but real ambient music and the real meaning of the word, as minimal as you want. And then all the way up to the most extreme emotionally evocative music that you can imagine. Literally. For any emotion that you can imagine as well. Literally. And just giving that map of possibilities and then working with that based on what's needed in the moment and there's various ways you can work with that in a moment that is so fascinating and so it's almost like the therapist can use wave paths as their own musical instrument it'll have an ai component that works with a certain patient's profile but then they can actually work with the <clears throat> software itself for a patient, say they're seeing multiple sessions with someone and totally, seeing what yeah. works. And yeah. and I've I've heard you say that it's not about liking the music. So it's not like the therapist is a <laughs> DJ and you're like, yo, can you play that sweet guitar solo? Cause I'm about to like peak. It's more like it's about <laughs> stimulating the brain in a certain way that facilitates both peak experiences, but also the repatterning and neuroplasticity of the brain as well. Is that is that an accurate way of looking at that? That's that's definitely one part of it. But I what I would add to your 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 comments, your 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 correct comment that I've, I've been emphasizing that we really want to be careful using the language of liking or disliking music and 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 really being thoughtful how we talk about music and psychedelic therapy before the session begins with your client is very important. And the reason why we are encouraging a different language around liking or disliking is because this is not about hedonism. This is not about pleasure. This is not about having a, a nice time. It, it's about therapy. And therapy at times will be a little bit dislikable. Therapy at times can be, at, can be a bit challenging. Psychotherapy of any form, whether it's psychedelic therapy or gestalt or psychodynamic therapy or 
experiential somatic bioenergetic therapy or whatever, it will at times be uncomfortable. And that is that is something that needs to be acknowledged and and understood in, in different elements. But for the sake of, of of focusing on music, medicine sometimes doesn't taste nice. You know, I, I barely meet people that say, Oh, that's San Pedro um powder that I drank with water was one of the best things I've tasted in my life. Let's do it again. Or the ayahuasca. And these are often described as one of the most disgusting things people ever ever tasted. You know, it's not a nice experience. And then the experience itself, the psychic experience itself, can at times be challenging because you're confronted with challenging parts of yourself. But the whole nature of a psychic experience is that you are reconnected with parts within yourself, parts of your being that you were not connected with before. And sometimes those parts are there, they have been hidden before, because they are uncomfortable, they are unsettling. And then the task, the the therapeutic work, is building a constructive relationship with those parts, not pushing them away. But the opposite of that coin is, uh, the flip side of that coin, is something that needs to be acknowledged as well. Sometimes these parts of ourselves that have been forgotten or suppressed may be blissful maybe filled with joy and optimism, maybe filled with ecstasy, maybe filled with calm and stillness. There's various things that can be suppressed into the unconscious. And this is um, another, I don't want to uh, open up too many rabbit holes here, but just very briefly, one of the other things that I keep emphasizing in some of the workshops I've been doing is that it's not, that, that, that there is this easy misinterpretation when we read certain literature around challenging experience or experiences or difficult trips that that's where the healing needs to happen you know or the, the opposite as well that in order to 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 change my life in order to have a positive switch in my life a positive new direction in my life i need to have a mystical experience or i need to have a peak experience all of that can be very confusing and there's a lot of nuance that needs to be brought to that to that conversation but yeah sometimes these Parts of ourselves that have been inaccessible before are blissful, are very positive. And and experiencing that, someone that hasn't been happy and joyful for decades, someone that has been depressed and unable to feel any joy and pleasure for decades, re-accessing that part is exactly where the healing needs to happen. So yeah, there's much to say about this. When it comes to music, yeah, sometimes it's really, really important to go through experiences with music that you may not like per definition it may not be the music that you usually listen to but the healing opportunity is offered to you in that interaction with that challenging experience the question is what is challenging about it right let's let's explore that maybe the music needs to be changed to support this person better that may be the case or maybe this person needs to stick with this experience because the experience is meaningful. The experience may remind, I'm going to give you a, a real example. The, next, the experience may remind this person of her alcoholic abusive father. The, the musical experience may remind this person of his funeral and existential anxiety. And the music may remind an individual of a breakup that happened or the sense of emptiness that he or she has felt for so long in his or her life. There's many different elements there. Yeah, and there's a lot of nuance to bring to the table. Hmm. I wanted to ask you about something that's really near and dear to my heart, which is the music of ayahuasca ceremony, the Icaros. And hmm. you mentioned that you'd spent some time in the Amazon. And there is something that's extraordinary medicinal about these songs that have been passed down over generations. I mean, I can think of the galloping, joyful songs of the Yawanawa, for example, that mm-hmm. just really lift you up. Or just even mm-hmm. like kind of the kind of simple sort of whistling to begin a Shipibo ceremony. And when you hear that sound, mm-hmm. if you've been in the ayahuasca space, you're like, <laughs> you can kind of begin mm-hmm. to feel, you feel something. And what it, the way it's been described to me is that these ikros are protective, that they are, that mm-hmm. they have been passed down to protect the ceremony. And um, so I'm curious. Mm-hmm. If you've done any research on Ikaros and what is actually being created 
in in what's really a technology that's been iterated over many times. Have you studied Ikros, mm-hmm. or have the as the tradition of Ikros influenced the work that you've done with wave paths? So I, I haven't studied Ikros in the sense of I haven't set up scientific experiments myself and published on it, but I have studied them personally, both through my direct experience with them and by reading about them and talking about them with, with experts in the field, shamans um, most notably. So I have some understanding of the various ideas and concepts related to Ikros, the uh, kind of music theoretical elements even that are, that are that seem to be part of them. Yeah, uh, there, there, there's various things there. Eh? First of all, there is the worldview, the, the shamanic worldview in which Ikros are embedded. So I, I've been primarily exposed to Shipibo uh, shamanism. I'm actually going to share a few anecdotes here with you. Some shamans I work with, one person described every Ikro as a telephone number for a spirit. I think their I love work with ayahuasca, they, they, they believe and work with spirits and everything has a spirit. Plants have a spirit, stones have a spirit. You can discuss the kind of metaphysical reality of that, but that's not really the, the point, I think, of this, this conversation. But they work with spirits. It's the, it's, it's the essence of their work and they work with spirits and magic and they believe in doing it for the good and as well as for the bad. There, there's a lot of belief in witchcraft and, 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 and using this knowledge for destroying uh, the lives of people as well. It's something I woke up to when I lived in the Amazon. Like, oh, this is not a peaceful tradition at all. This is very, very interesting. So anyway, apart from that, Ikaros are part of that tradition. And it's, 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 there's much more to say about this. I'm not, I'm not an anthropologist. I'm definitely not an expert when it comes to shamanism. But one thing I know is that shamanism is a method, a method to enter an altered state of consciousness and in these different worldviews and a realm where you can communicate more clearly with spirits. So the idea of Icaros as a telephone line it brings in these different spirits is, is a very interesting way of looking at it. Even if you don't, even if you don't sign up to the metaphysical kind of paranormal phenomena itself, I do think there is merit and value in defining what is meant with spirit like the spirit of a place the essence the original word of the spirit means essence and and even through that lens looking at ikros each ikro having a particular essence i think is is something very interesting music definitely songs definitely have essences right have a particular core to them a particular soul to them particular spirit to them if you wish so at the same time what i'm trying to grapple with here is kind of my understanding of kind of kind of relaying my understanding of the various ways people work with the crows and my own kind of interpretations and thoughts on that i i had beautiful and powerful experiences with both Shikibo shamanism as well as the hunikuin in brazil and 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 I've been blown away by the tapestry that they are weaving sonically, the kind of cyclical, rhythmical, tonal nature that keeps repeating itself over and over again in ever new shapes and forms that seems to be creating and influencing the experience as well as in a way of, of providing some structure and some direction and some sense of journeying, as well as keeping some spaciousness to travel in that with your own agency and it's not it's, it, i've barely been in ceremonies where music was super dominating and and, and enforcing itself and, and upon the listener although i've been in some of them and they were uh, slightly traumatic but that's a whole, whole other story the footnote i want to place here maybe is that there is a tendency to romanticize traditions there is a tendency to romanticize, and this not only applies to the psychedelic community, it applies to any community where there is a degree of um, spirituality involved. So you see the same in, in India, uh, in the, where in the 60s onwards, Westerners flooded India in the search for gurus and, and guidance. 
there is a tendency to romanticize certain philosophies and people that seem to offer offer something to us. And when it comes to, in this case, conversation, the role of Icaros in music and sound, I tend to become, I tend to position myself more and more on the skeptical side. And and a mean skeptical, not in a dismissive, negative way, but in we may call this constructive skepticism. There are acknowledging that many assumptions and hypotheses are ungrounded and and influenced sometimes by this tendency to romanticize certain elements, and being really careful with that. There's many examples of this. You have the binaural beat movement. You have the 423 hertz movement. I believe it was that on YouTube. There's many ideas about what sound can do that are most likely not true, at the very least have not been studied, and at the same time being humble about that, at the same time being humble and curious, and acknowledging that we also don't know a lot about sound. And I wouldn't be surprised at all to find certain harmonic textures that tend to do a particular thing with some consistency. In fact, this is something that WavePods, thankfully, is allowing me and us to study. Uh, this is one of the motivations to start the organization, is really to ask these kind of questions that everyone is asking, but no one is really putting rigorous science behind. So we are interested in these questions. And then the other thing with Icaros and music in general is, can we relate to it? Again, this is a language that we feel supportive with. I've been in a shamanic ceremony at some point where there was a girl next to me that was entering a state of profound dissociation deeper and deeper she was repeating the ask for help the ask for her mother over and over again she was entering a loop and it kept on going and at some point one of the facilitators helped her or wanted to help her had the intention to help her made her sit up straight sit up straight and said don't be afraid you're a strong woman and shaked her body you're strong and she dissociated further, and I could see her going downwards into this, whatever it was, this this element that was playing itself out in her experience. And then, and, and I was getting, I really needed to pull myself out of the experience myself because I got concerned. I was internally, <laughs> internally navigating to what degree I should intervene or not. You know, I'm not, I'm not the ceremony master here i'm a participant we all signed up together to give leadership and authority to these people who am i to give my opinion so that was this whole internal dynamic that i was working through but i saw this girl being re-traumatized in front of my my eyes severely and then the shaman came to help eventually like one half hour hours later or so and he started to sing songs to her and blow smoke and rattle and it was very clear, looking at her body language, that everything was made worse, way worse. The very last thing that this person needed was more shamanic rattling and, and, and incense and smoke. And she became profoundly dissociated and confused. And this was two years ago, and she's still doing integration therapy you know, for this experience. There was some trauma that came up that was solidified as a deeper trauma, mm. it seems. This is what I mean with the care. We really need to be careful with romanticizing various shamanic traditions because they are developed in a particular worldview, in a particular culture, and they have their wisdom, they have their unique insights that we can definitely learn from, but they also have their limitations. And I really believe that moving this field forward there's so much we can learn from an integrative approach to all the different forms of psychotherapy that are out there and the different traditions that are out there and really entering a conversation constantly. And this person most likely didn't need, the last thing that she needed was, again, this intervention in that moment. From my humble per perception, this is my opinion, from how I saw this unfold, my my own take on that case would be that this person needed more safety. And that safety needed to be provided in a fully nonverbal, interpersonal way, with or without music. But this person literally became a baby 
Her head was weak. Her neck was weak. She was rolling over the floor and she was crying for mummy for hours. Yeah. And there's many of these cases. Huh? When you enter the ayahuasca community, there's many of these cases. And I'm not, I'm not want to say anything negative in principle about shamanism. In fact, this is a great interest of mine. But the great interest that is arriving globally around shamanism, I think, needs to be approached with great care because it may not be the right method for it's definitely not the right method for everyone and therefore people always need to check in with themselves if it works or not if it fits or not yeah Mm, yeah that's an important cautionary tale and i think that that brings us to the just the importance of evidence-backed psychedelic therapy you know what is the research what is it saying about the nature of trauma Mm -hmm. and how trauma healing happens and the role of the therapist and we know anecdotally and it's so well understood that set and setting play a role in the psychedelic experience we have a sense over and over again that that's true but we really need folks like yourself who are actually deeply researching and and providing studies that can say well actually you know this type of music works in this way at this time and this type of music works in this way in this mm-hmm. time so that when someone is having a difficult experience in psychedelic therapy mm-hmm. the therapist has the best tools available to say oh i i can see how we can slow down this music now we can kind of bring in this other these other tones this other tone color and that may help kind of create that ease and safety that the client needs just in that moment so i think it's yeah, extraordinarily yeah, yeah. important what you're doing hmm. and fun as well i feel very grateful that i can do this work but i'm also really grateful that it's so much fun you know, this is such an interesting topic with so much layers to uncover. And it's amazing to see the team growing around this as well. Within Wave Thoughts, it's growing and growing, and everyone is sharing this passion, which is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I could, I could go on and on about music, but we're towards <laughs> the end of our time today. And I, I have one final question that I ask every guest on the show, mm-hmm. which is, um, mm-hmm. our listeners are psychedelic therapists or those who aspire to be, also psychedelic enthusiasts, but a lot of folks who really want to mm-hmm. be doing the healing themselves. Um, so I'd like to give you an opportunity to speak directly to those individuals from your experience as a researcher, from the work you're doing with WavePaths, from your own experience with psychedelic therapy. If you could speak directly to psychedelic therapists right now, what would you like to say to them? What I would like to say to psychedelic therapists? Yeah, wow. <laughs> Interesting invitation. I think, well, let me maybe just be very spontaneous here. One of the first things that comes to mind is keep viewing yourself as a student. Continuously. Always. A training is never done. Your work is never done. And your training as a therapist is 100% aligned and intertwined with how you work on yourself as a person therapeutically. And this is really not another protocol to learn that you can then follow. This is really a path in the same way that becoming a musician is a path in the same way that becoming a psychotherapist in general uh, is a path. And I think the danger or the risk that we need to navigate together over the coming years and decades is for psychedelic therapy not to become what happened to yoga, at least to some degree, yoga being a wisdom tradition with many pillars to them. And now we have hundreds of different forms of yoga. Intrinsically, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's a testament to innovation and creativity, right? But with psychedelics, we talk about something profound and, and powerful. And it can, it can be, it can impact the lives of people in really powerful ways, both positively and negatively. Uh, and it can also be diluted. The potential of that, pro- of that profoundness can also be diluted. It can also easily be lost. I believe that's very vulnerable, actually. The, the depth of that experience is dependent on certain variables that are very subtle and that they have to do with not only the music, but also with, for this the sake of this conversation, you as a person, uh, the degree to which you are authentic with yourself and how, what your relationship is with yourself in this moment will impact the experience of your clients probably more than the protocol that you have in your head. Uh, 
So I think it's really important to stay honest and, and, and humble all the time and be curious all the time because there's many things we don't know yet. Mm, yeah. Thank you for that, Mendel. It's a beautiful invitation. So WavePaths is currently allowing beta testing. Is that the stage that the software is at at the moment? Yeah, we have a few hundred active beta testers as we speak and a, <laughs> a much larger wait list. We have many, many thousands that want to beta test, but we are capping it to um, limit. We are from time to time inviting new groups. Yeah, we have a very active group of beta testers that is working with it with our tool in primarily ketamine assistive psychotherapy. Some are using it for psilocybin and DMA. Others are using it in classrooms with their kids. Others are using it as their in their practice of yoga or breath work or coaching. We have a few coaches in there as well. Yeah, we have a, a beautiful group of beta testers. We are releasing this to the public very soon, actually. Mm, is there a release yeah, date? We're currently in our... I don't like to put concrete dates <laughs> in public because that will that's a risk. Development is a, is a flexible process, but um, the music system is, is is done. We are refining it. We're expanding up, up on it with, with musical diversity and personalization algorithms as we speak. We are primarily focusing on design, on interface design, uh, and, and that, that will be done in the course of the coming months. And then we will see a release the most likely there will be a staged release. So most likely we are opening up first to another limited number of, of, of users. Maybe we move from, from a few hundred to a few thousand there. And then after that, we are going to open up to everyone who likes to work with it. Yeah. It's, it's going to be an exciting year for the company. Yeah. Looking, everyone that is interested to learn more, you can sign up to the various email lists on our website and you, you, will, you will stay informed that way and our social media as well. Great, and we'll we'll have that in the show notes. And do you put things out publicly yourself? Can people follow you on social media and follow your work directly? Yeah, I killed Facebook many years ago after the Cambridge Analytica thing came out. Uh, did the same with WhatsApp actually recently. But um, yeah, when it comes to social media that I still use, it's primarily Twitter at this moment. Yeah. So if people like to stay um, connected with me one on one through social media, Twitter is really the way to go. I have an Instagram account, but I'd only use it to share photographs, basically. Non-socially, there's nothing to do with WavePaths. Twitter is really where I share research as well and developments with the company as well. Well, we'll have all of that in the show notes. And gosh, I could talk about mm -hmm. psychedelics and sound for ages. I feel like we just scratched the yeah. surface. Maybe we'll have you back on the show when that um, when the full public release is available and can provide an opportunity to kind Sounds of walk good. people yeah. through it. Sounds yeah. good. We have a community platform that is part of the beta testing. So people, when they are beta testing, are not only having access to the tool, but also access to a community, a private community, a private social network, where we discuss everything music, psychedelic therapy related in much detail. Yeah, so it's something to point out as well, because there's lots of shared learnings that we are unpacking here over the years to come. Yeah, well, we gotta get we gotta get this software out there, then you know, and then keep iterating and learning. <laughs> well, Mendel, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been a pleasure to get to know you. It's wonderful to hear your story and your passion and all the work you've put in this field. Thank you for your contribution, and uh, look forward to having you back on the show sometime. Thanks, Eamon. It was really fun as well. Really enjoyed it. Yeah. Till next time. Thank you for joining us on the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. If you enjoyed this show, please join the Psychedelic Therapy Facebook group to talk about it. You can also share it with your friends or leave a review on iTunes so more people can discover the show. The Psychedelic Therapy Podcast is presented by Maya, a platform designed to help psychedelic therapists manage and measure client journeys. You can head to mayahealth.com to learn more. The show is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide mental health or medical advice. Thanks for listening.